Welcome back to another Meet the Author. We've got a great conversation in store for you today. So Gary, I'm going to throw it right to you. And Why don't you share who do we have with us as a guest today on Meet the Author? Okay, thanks, Tamara. Well, welcome, everybody, and um, thank you for joining us. The book we're going to talk about, and you can see in my background, is called is Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. It was written in 2018 by two authors, Chris Clearfield and Andres Tilchik. I'm really pleased today that we have one of the authors here today, Chris. So welcome, Chris, to our Meet the Author show. Thank you. I'm very excited. Um, very excited to be here and honored by the invitation. Great. Thank you. Now, we, as you know, our format is we don't spend a lot of time like, who's Chris? What do you do? That's all. All this bio stuff will be available and easy to get. What I do right now is just dive straight into the book itself and ask that very first question. So what made you two decide to write this book? Is there a certain need that you're trying to fulfill? Yes. Um... You know, I, I think for me, I'll, I'll just talk about my journey and, and Andres's was, was a little bit different. Um, I have very much the background of a practitioner, so not a, not a safety practitioner, not a consultant, but um, I was in finance in the, during the financial crisis. So I was a trader during the financial crisis. And so I had this kind of front row seat to the world, you know, falling apart um, and just got really interested as that happened in why some organizations seem to manage that crisis much better than others. And I just got really interested in that kind of, the sort of heterogeneity of the response to this big unexpected, you know, series of unexpected shocks. Um, but it really wasn't until 2010 when Deepwater Horizon blew up that I, I, I was reading about the accident, I was reading about the investigation, I was watching it unfold Kind of with horror as as many of us were, um, and it was really then that I realized that oh gosh this 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 thing that I've been working with this connection between complexity and failure and and organizational's ability to to manage that and to to be resilient like this is a much bigger problem than just finance this is much bigger than my own my own kind of niche and so then at that point I got very interested in kind of the broader question the broader ways that complexity was a source of, you know, really a source of risk and a source of failure that I think um, was and, and still is underappreciated. And so it was really that that led to kind of feeling, you know, feeling called to um, contribute to that discussion. There's a lot of very powerful voices in that discussion, but you're just feeling called to contribute a sort of a slightly different perspective on it. Um, grounded in complexity, but also grounded in, okay, so, you know, what, what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Good. All right. Well, interesting title that you picked called Meltdown. So where did this term originate from? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I mean, of course, you know, we, we, we use the term colloquially, right? So we use it in an engineering sense to describe, you know, what, what happens when a nuclear reactor goes awry. Um, we use it colloquially to describe, you know, what happens when things don't go as we expect, um, you know, whether that's in parenting and a kid having a meltdown or, you know, just sort of a, a kind of a business meltdown. Um, but as we developed the idea for the book, it was actually our agent who, our, our literary agent, who was like, you know, I think meltdown is a good title. And we kind of, it really landed with us. And so we, we went with it. Oh, good. Interesting. Well, by your book's title, you've, you've actually taken the book and created two parts. So I'd like to begin with that part one, why our systems fail. And I know that in 1984, um, Charles Perrault published Normal Accidents. And I, I really like how you've used his interactions coupling chart to really explain why systems fail. So maybe you can quickly um, just explain what are the two axes and how are you using it in the book? Yes, um, absolutely. Well, so. You know, Perot, if people don't know, I'm sure a lot of people in this in this crowd do know him, but Perot was an, an organizational scholar who, you know, before he started writing about systems and failure, he, he was really writing about, you know, deep, deep, what I think of as deep sociology. So, you know, agrarian patterns in, um, you know, rural areas and how, you know, the, the I think 18th century textile mills and the way that that influenced, you know, agrarian patterns and all this stuff. But 
he got involved in the Three Mile Island accident investigation, and or and in doing so, he really started to see kind of disaster as an organizational problem, not just a problem that was kind of inevitable, but a problem that came from the way that these systems were organized, and and you know, frankly, the fundamental limits of organizations to manage these. Um, so in Perot's kind of conception, which was drawn on Three Mile Island and, and then lots of other cases, he looks at two axes, complexity, which is sort of how, how much the connections within the system matter, how much those connections are, are kind of more important than, than the parts and the sort of the density of the connections. And, and we also kind of thought of that as how opaque the system is, you know, how hard is it to understand what's going on at any given moment? And then the other axis is tight coupling. It's basically how much slack do you have in the system when, when there is something that, that goes wrong, when there is that kind of challenge to the system, you know, does it return to equilibrium or is it, is it off and running and is it hard for people to stop? And, and you know, that, that tight coupling, that can be in time, um, it can be in, um, you know, kind of resources. Um, so there, there's lots of different dimensions that you can think about your system as being tightly coupled, but you know, a kind of easy way to think about it is like, does, if an operator understands what's going on, be that a chief financial officer or, you know, somebody who's sitting in front of a control panel, do they actually have the time and capacity to kind of intervene in, in the system? Um, and if they don't, then, and it's complex, then, you know, Perot's statement was that there was kind of an, a normal accident that was inevitable. Our statement is a little bit softer, but kind of using his framework to sort of look at all kinds of systems and say, you know, just the, the risk, the risk of these systems is higher. The risk of these unexpected events kind of spiraling out of control is higher. So that's the lens that we, that's the way we kind of built on Perot's framework. Yeah. And then if you look at these two axes, you can see that you can create this almost like a two by two matrix. Right. And then in the top, in the bottom left corner, if you can visualize that, are the organizations that, okay, they're kind of looser, they're more linear, not a problem. But that's that area in the top right that we're really interested in, right? You know, where there's really tight coupling and really high complexity, and that's, I think that's where a lot of the systems fail. And in some cases, we don't even know why they fail because it's it's so right. complex. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, your book it's full of great details, ranging from failures, which many of us on this call are familiar with, such as as you mentioned, Deepwater Horizon, but then you talked a bit about the Washington Metro train system. And then you also include past meltdowns with no physical harm, but still plenty of damage. What are some of these are, are right? the um, night capital meltdown, Starbucks had a meltdown <laughs> with their Twitter feed, the UK post office, of course, our, our favorite Enron, and mm. even the funny one, which uh, we all kind of shake your head at, and we all saw it on TV was the Academy Awards Oscars meltdown yes. that they had as well. Like, oh my God. <clears throat> now, this book that you wrote was, is three years ago. So what I'd like to do is bring everybody up to speed to today. And let's talk a bit about some of those meltdowns that we're seeing now, such as, well, in, in the US, you know, we're all watching the world, the January 6th Capitol insurrection. What happened there? We, we notice there's anti-vaxxers and their, and their actions. We have an extinction of rebellion. And then on the nature side, we've got wildfires. And of course, mm -hmm. what we're being experienced here in the Northwest is flooding with something called atmospheric rivers. So, so why, what are your thoughts? Can you bring us up to speed? Why are these meltdowns and what's different about them? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of them, I mean, if we just choose one, which, you know, the kind of the, let's just call it more broadly sort of misinformation, right, which is a, a sort of, it's funny, we, we the book launch, the, the day the book launch was the same day that the, the Facebook um, Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. And if you remember that, I mean, that's like, a thousand scandals ago, so it might be hard to remember. But if you remember that it was, you know, Facebook selling or basically allowing people to access user data in a way that allowed them to, to deliver very targeted political ads and, and kind of run this, this influence campaign. And so, you know, I think if you even just start with this idea of misinformation and look at Facebook and Twitter and the way that these platforms are engineered, 
you know, sort of by definition creates unexpected connections, right? It's, I mean, they're kind of made to create unexpected connections and to, to bring people to information that will keep them engaged, not necessarily bring them to information that will, um, you know, enrich their understanding of a particular situation. And so you get this kind of drive towards outrage on, on these platforms. And I think one of the things we're seeing is that you know, to some extent, they were engineered in this way. Um, but to another extent, you know, they are behaving in a way that is, um, has consequences that are well beyond what their creators, designers intended or anticipated. And so, you know, you kind of look at, um, like, Zuckerberg will go before Congress, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to quote him off the cuff. But, you know, basically, his, his kind of stance is like, Look, it's a social good to have people connected. We're we're connecting people. We're performing a social good, and yet you look at the empirical reality of it, and it's like, like I'm not sure that the way that you're connecting people is a social good. And and I think that there is a real um, responsibility to be connected with the complexity of our systems and to acknowledge and understand that when they don't behave as we expect, when they do kind of throw off these deleterious consequences, these externalities, then that's really a sign for us to, to wake up and pay attention to them in, in a different way. Yeah, right. So anybody out there, any readers, do you have any comments, thoughts about some of the meltdowns that we're seeing today? Uh, anybody want to raise your hand and maybe make a comment? Uh, what about your own backyard at home? Any, any systems that you're seeing are failing on your part? Do you have anybody out there? Put up your hand or open up your mic and um, chat. Yeah, I'd, I wouldn't mind throwing in a comment, Gary. Um, the thing, nothing in particular, but what really gets me about you know this is the is the speed with which technology is driving the world, yeah. and the small groups of people that are in control of that of that train and how fast that train is moving. And the, so the thing that is really getting me is that we are we are sold something or told something and, and it's embedded into our, into our business very, very quickly. It gets adopted very quickly. Uh, and it, and it's, that, that, it's almost like the bus leaves the station before people realize what direction it's going. So like Chris mentioned earlier there, there's these unintended consequences. And before we, before we can even absorb and, and understand what's happening and to, to really embed it in our processes, Already it's outdated, it's changed direction. Somebody, somebody has taken us now, you know, the bus is going in a different direction or it's not supported in some way. And that's the thing that, that scares me is, it, you know, if a video game doesn't work for kids playing with it and it doesn't get supported next Christmas, okay, that's one thing. But when that's embedded into how our industrial platforms are built or how our emergency services are built, that's the thing that is really terrifying to me is that it's, it's moving at a rate, there's no possible way that, and I know I'm of the older generation, but how can we possibly stay with this pace and, and where does it end? So I'll, yeah. I'll leave that just for a discussion. Yeah, good. Tom, you got a comment? Yeah, I mean, I apologize. I haven't read Chris's book, but I've been interested in um, complex and the systems approach. And I think they're, they're two different things. One is looking at industrial accidents or accidents as a systems failure but also recognizing some systems are genuinely much more complex. And I guess my, my definition is one of the things about systems is they behave in very non-intuitive ways. They do unpredictable things. And the more complex they are, the more unpredictable. And in, in a sense, industrial accidents like Three Mile Island, like um, Deepwater Horizon are a good algorithm almost for, for wider society. You know, we're starting to see it with global warming. I think 10 years ago, people thought it was going to be gradual flooding. And actually, it turns out extreme weather events are coming at us much more soon. And I guess my question is that I think it's very easy with hindsight to look at accidents and say, a systems perspective, a complex system perspective gives you a very good insight. What's much harder is to persuade traditional managers, successful managers, particularly, and traditional organisations and actually everyone in organizations likes to think in very mechanistic ways. And so I think it's easy with hindsight, but my question is, how do we use this to help us understand before the accident happens, 
yeah. that we should be changing our behaviours more. It's, it's how do we get that message across before the accident happens, not after the accident happens. Hindsight bias is very powerful, but sharing that insight is the challenge for me. That, that's a great segue into part two, which we really want to spend a lot of time in, so what we can do about it. But before we do there, I just want to hang a bit longer in this part one about why systems fail. Does anybody else have any other comments, thoughts about that? I, I actually, I do want to jump in and, and just, um, I mean, first, thank you, Gordon, for your comment, because I think there's, there's really something there about, um, you know, you talked about the pace of change, but I also hear really um, the need to support change in an explicit way and the need to, you know, yes, if you get a new platform in, boy, you've got to train people on that. And like, you really need the people that under, are closest to the problems of a, of a system or, you know, just closest to a problem being involved in the development and the integration of that system. And, and it's sort of, I'm often struck by the amount of times that that doesn't happen. And then you get these big problems as a result, because there are these big kind of mismatches between what people actually need a system to do and what it does. And so much of that, I think, just comes from um, not connecting with the wisdom of the people that, that are closest to the, to the challenge, which I think is, is one of the themes that we talk about, about in the book um, quite a bit. And, 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 you know, with Tom, I, I think in, in many ways you are asking the question that, that I've spent the last, you know, five, six years thinking about as I kind of started to move seriously into this space and said, well, you know, hang on, like, let's take a look at Deepwater Horizon. Let's take a look at these organizations that are, um, you know, are operating these complex systems and let's understand why it is that they're not as sensitive to, to, to these things. And, you know, one of the conclusions, I mean, I guess I have two conclusions um, from it. One is that um, it, I find it very effective to and, and sort of un, like brazenly unscientific, but very effective to engage leaders with stories instead of with data. I think what a lot of people do, particularly you know engineering, um, I work with a lot of engineers, and, and and I a lot of what I do is help folks help folks who are very left brain and very analytical get in touch with their right brain, right? Get in touch with, okay, how do what is the person I'm talking with? What do they care about? How do I deliver this message with what I call practical empathy, right? So, so I'm understanding that they have needs, and that if I can speak to those needs, then then I can be very powerful. So, right now, for example, I'm working with a safety team on kind of a a, a helping them help supporting their leader as she guides a trans a real transformational change. How they work with themselves, how they work with other groups, how to elevate their conversation so they're not at the level of helping people tick boxes, but they're really giving safety ownership to the operators. So you can just hear that there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this. There's a lot of big changes. And one of the things we're doing is just thinking very, very carefully about, you know, what, what are the stories that we can tell to um, a group of operators who are or sort of a group of business owners, really, to, to land this, why this change is important for them, right? Because yes, you know, it's, it's, we want to have more efficient processes and we want to have work-life balance amongst the safety team, but the management, as much as they like the safety people and they, you know, kind of care about them as humans, it's like, well, if that's the only problem, then just hire more safety people, right? Like, don't, you don't need to change the way we work with you. But if they understand, you know, on a, on a deeper level, like, look, what we're trying to do is create a work environment that's going to be safer, more reliable, you know, more on schedule, all of these things that are, Kind of how to land using stories of other places that have failed and succeeded how to land this message that this is actually something that's important to attend to so um yeah it's something that a lot of my work kind of especially since thinking about complexity and then realizing that it wasn't the thing that had a lot of management's attention so a lot of what i've done is think about how do i kind of you know not yeah how do i frame these things in a way that people people care about so, Tanya, got a comment? Actually, I think it might have been addressed in, in what Chris was just saying there, but I was, um, a lot of this kind of stuff, I am starting to wonder if it has really deep roots in our, you know, Western paradigm of thinking kind of thing. When, it, when Chris was talking about 
um, you know, storytelling and trying to get people in touch with their their so-called right brain. Um, there, there is a lot of resistance to change the 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 allure of the status quo notwithstanding people being attracted to the iphone and things like that you know they're they're technologically we seem to have great acceptance of change but there are in other spheres we seem not to be quite so accepting of it and i'm wondering if that um, you know, as as Chris, I, I think, uh, fairly stated, Perot was looking at a much looking at Three Mile Island in a much different way than other analysts were doing, um, looking at the much larger sociological view in a in a in a paradigm that I think makes people uncomfortable because it's starting to question uh, like way yes. more than what we feel comfortable questioning. Yes. Yes, I, I, I just want to support that, Tanya. Like that's such a, an insightful comment. And I'll just, I'll just, I'm going to say some words and you tell me if that lands with what you're saying. Like a lot of safety is actually, a conversation about safety is actually a conversation about power. It's a conversation about who has power, who has the power to say yes, who has the power to say no. And, and what Perot does is in his work is he, and, and, and somewhat explicitly too, he starts to say, look, you wanna blame these operators, but you know, I, I don't wanna be salty here, but you know, that's just stuff rolling down the hill, right? Like you've chosen the, the people with the least structural power to blame. Actually, you've gotta look at this from a societal level. You've gotta look at it from an organizational level. And, and yeah, and so I, I, you know, it power, but power is uncomfortable. We don't really like to talk about it, but it's a lot of what I end up talking about with the people I work with because you have to, you know, power is, it's, it's scary and it's uncomfortable, but it's not bad. I mean, it exists and we have to, we actually want to, to, to work on change in systems. We have to be very, very clear that, um, that about how power works and that it's there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Tom, I know you got your hand up, but I'm just going to ask you if you could just hang on to that, because um, I'm mindful that Chris is only with us through the top of the hour. And I really want to get into this, I think the cool part, which is part two, what can we do about it? And this is, of course, why the reason why the book was written. Um, when I was reading part one, it, it made me think about that complexity phenomenon, hidden patterns of order. And as you found out, Chris, hey, this is happening here, it's happening over here. There's this pattern that seems to be repeating these things here. You mentioned in the book that Charles Perrault said that safety systems are the biggest source of catastrophic failure in complex, tightly coupled systems. What did he mean by that? It's all counterintuitive. Well, yes. Um, and I, but I bet it is counterintuitive, but it's also quite intuitive and I bet I bet um, if you're on the screen and you just nod if this resonates with you, I mean, you know, when there's a problem, when something goes wrong in a system, I mean, the, the tools that people reach for are often additive, right? It's like, oh, well, this went wrong. Let's add another check here. Or like, now we need another piece of documentation to make sure that people have completed this step. And, you know, the truth is at the margin, every one of those decisions seems reasonable. But when you think about it from a systems level, you start to get just, again, more and more complexity. And there's a, a particular case we talk about in the book of a, an overdose um, at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, their, their pediatric hospital, um, or with a pediatric patient at their hospital. And you know they are just a world-class clinical institution, and yet they had a system that um, created the space for a patient to get a 38-fold uh, antibiotics overdose. And he, he had a seizure and fortunately recovered. But, you know, you look at that system and it was just a system of check after check after check and a pharmacy robot and, you know, uh, the kind of operator level of, of the nurse sort of um, going forward, even despite her uneasiness. And then you've got the questions of, are people empowered to speak up? But one of the most interesting things was the, the physician who writes about this writes about how the response in the meeting, like, oh, we had this bad thing happen. Well, what do we need to do? Well, we want to add another check. And so, and yet the problem is that there's more, you know, we have so many checks that we're just adding complexity to this system. And, and so if you think about it from a systems perspective, if you think about from Perot's axis, then 
what you see is that complexity can or checks and safety systems can actually add risk, um, particularly when they're bolted on, right? It's also, I think that, that when you look at the design of the 737 MAX, it's the same kind of thing, like the system that's added on that is not totally thought through, not totally integrated. I mean, that's a source of a tremendous amount of, of challenge and error. Yeah, good. I think what you touched upon is something we we actually spoke about last month with Jim. And I think Jim, you're online when we talked about um, um, critical steps and just looking at different things within the process and are we actually adding this extra level of complexity and complicatedness, if I can use that word, and just makes it much more difficult for the workers to actually execute, it really does. All right, okay. Now, um, <laughs> complex systems are sometimes referred to as wicked environments because they have problems that we just can't seem to understand. And the effects of our decisions um, and to learn, and basically to learn from them often fails us. But I, you got a really good um, portion of the book where you talk about various tools that you can use to navigate all kinds of wicked environments. Uh, I don't know if you have the time to go through your big list, but would you like to pick out a couple of your favorites to talk about? Yes. Um, yeah, thanks for that question, Gary. And, and let me, let, I just want to take a step back by kind of teeing up the concept a little bit. And, you know, I was actually reading, I was yesterday reading a book on, on strategy and one of the questions that the author is talking about is when when can you this is sort of more general business strategy but when can you use intuition to to kind of help inform and develop your strategy you know it's this very when you think about the strategy of a business or even a functional unit like a safety team how, you know what do they want to be great at and how are they going to be great at it those are the kind of the sort of two questions i think of and that's you know, Roger Martin, who, who's a, the former dean of the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, he, he's written just a tremendous amount on strategy and, and just great stuff. But, but one of the things I think about is, you know, intuition. Intuition comes from, from getting immediate feedback from your environment. So the best kind of feedback is, you know, thinking about is when you watch a kid who's learning to walk, right? They're, they're kind of constantly falling, getting up, trying something new, constantly falling, getting up. They are educating their intuition about how to walk. Now, I think the problem is that as, as humans, it's, it's very easy to be overconfident. And so as we get experience in our work, we, we tend to continue to value our intuition. But a lot of the bigger problems we, we have to face, we really want to face them from kind of an experimental stance or an experimental standpoint rather than a standpoint of, Oh, here's my gut feeling. Here's how we're going to move forward. And yet, you know, I, again, I, I said before, I work with a lot of engineers, a lot of left brain people. And one of the challenges that, that we often get to is, you know, when you're making business decisions, a leader might make a decisions about the direction the company is going to go or the direction of, of a particular strategy. And you, after a year or two, you may not know, was that even the right decision, right? You may not have good data on it. Um, and so, when I think about intuition, I think about you have to be operating in a feedback, uh, an environment with high feedback. Otherwise, it's an environment that you don't learn from. And I think one of the challenges is when we take our intuition and we apply it in these environments about a complex system, about change, about a new strategy, without really ever being in the loop where we've, we're getting that feedback and we can kind of adjust and learn our intuition over time. Um, and so that's when I think, you know, broadly speaking, that's when tools really come in handy. Tools about, you know, how do you encourage people to estimate out of their comfort zone? So we have a, a, a section about that. Tools on, you know, even something simple like, you know, how, how, do you, how do you think about, instead of getting people locked into positions arguing about a direction that you should go, how do you think about, you know, what are the properties of a useful direction to go? What would have to be true for a strategy to be a great strategy? And then, you know, what are the, like, if you have a couple of choices, you can just score them along those criteria that you've developed. And now all of a sudden you have shifted people out of advocating for a position to kind of advocating for the we, or, you know, sort of advocating for the best thing uh, that, that is going to be true for the system, the organization, the, the group by, by flipping that around. So that, you know, that's at a high level and, and we go in, in, uh, you know, significantly more, more depth in the book. But I think that's a nice flavor of kind of 
how we thought about that and, and frankly why we thought it was important for like for thinking about complex systems because there really is this break where your intuition just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You, you actually have a great piece on talking about Gary Klein and his pre-mortem method. Yep. And Tom, this, this ties in, I think, with your question asked. So how can we, what can we do to prevent a meltdown from happening? So would you like to kind of explain what Gary talks about there, Chris? Yes. Um, yeah. You know, Gary's work is is really interesting um, because Gary is talking about intuition, right? I mean, he he's sort of he is writing about what um, what I was just saying, and it really is um, when you when you think about you know the the the, the research on um, um, like Gary Klein's research on intuition and how to apply it, and then you. You hold that up against like Kahneman and Tversky and prospect theory and these kind of you know these these this um, irrationality this kind of human irrationality cognitive biases that's what we call it. You see this kind of tension between these two things and and I think it's it's interesting because I think in part the tension resolves itself by just how do you um, like how do you think about the system you're operating in is it is it a system where your intuition is going to help you or harm you. Um, and so one of the things that one of the techniques that, that Gary Klein and his team use is this technique called the pre-morta, which is basically saying, you know, the chief limitation of a post-mortem, yes, we can learn from incidents, we can learn from accidents, but the chief limitation is that that bad thing has already happened, right? So how do we get ahead of it? And what Gary talks about is um, this idea of perspective hindsight. So you ask a question you know, imagine it's six months from now, imagine it's a year from now, whatever the right time frame is. And it turns out that, you know, our, our, our system has failed in a horrible and dramatic way. And actually when I'm doing this with groups, I will often put up a little um, newspaper headline that says, you know, um, whatever, we did this with, with the, the MBAs at the University of Toronto, you know, um, Rotman suffers devastating setback, right? You know, and, and then you get to think, okay, it's a year from now, you know, what, what went wrong to cause this failure? What went wrong um, to, to, to cause this problem? And, and once you're connected with that, it's not, it's not brainstorming, right? It's like, given that the failure happened, what was the cause of it? And that really just unlocks people's ability to be both more specific and more creative. And, and they, you, you get people to really uncover um, deeper, more kind of more important risks. Yeah. And some of you on the call may recognize um, the pre-mortem method um, spoken about as red teaming. That was developed by the U.S. military and intelligence agencies after 911, because there were a lot of signals that were out there and they just and people couldn't connect the dots and see them. And the other one that I've been reading about is how Israel uses it. They have a concept called the 10th man. And this is making sure, and they actually have a person dedicated say, okay, you nine generals, whatever, agree. I want somebody to disagree with that, you know, and make that very conscious and deliberate just to kind of make sure that we understand that uh, uh, we, is there anything that we've kind of missed at all. Okay. All right. Now, um, you've dedicated a whole chapter on the anatomy of dissent. I really yeah. love this because essentially we're saying it's no longer disrespectful to question the decisions of a superior. And I think most of us, we've been talking about this thing, and we do it under that title called psychological safety, right? Yeah. Speaking up and the willingness to hear bad news. I, I like how in your research, you kind of shared three lessons that you discovered, how dissent becomes part of the culture. Can you kind of go into that first? Well, um, can you remind me what the three lessons are? Because yeah. the, the book is yeah. probably fresher in your brain than it is in mine at yeah. that level of detail. Number one was charm school. Mm, yeah. Number two was soften power cues. And the third one was leaders speak last. Yes. Um, so the, 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 <clears throat> the, the, the charm school bit is about, um, is about aviation and is about this development of this, this idea of crew resource management, which is really a structured way to 
um, introduce dissent into the system, introduce noise into the into the system, um, and, and to kind of decouple structural power from from decision making input at any given time. What I think about it is very interesting. It is you know I've been in a lot of organizations where um, <clears throat> you know they'll have a really nice plaque in their conference room that says you know um, one of their values is that they're they're you know, teams speak up when they see something wrong or coworkers speak up when something's not right. And I, I remember being in a meeting um, with uh, some senior folks at an organization and looking at that plaque and saying, you know, you know, you got the direction on this backwards, right? The, the idea isn't you need to get people to speak up, it's that you need to get managers to listen when they hear bad news. And, and so, you know, that, I think that framing really puts you know, it, you can train people to listen, right? You can train people to be more open. And in career resource management, is just a very interesting way to, um, that, that, that we see that being done in aviation that really changed the dynamic and created dramatically safer outcomes. Um, and then of course, you know, the, the, that, that talk, that kind of ties into what Tanya and I were talking about earlier, which is this idea of power and of, you know, we don't, so many leaders don't realize the amount of power that is just vested in their position, vested in their, you know, the, the way the way that they talk, the way that they operate, the way that they take up space, um, you know, in their gender, um, in their race. I mean, there's just lots of lots of ways that um, power gets embedded into a person, and we're very often unaware of that. We're we're often unaware of how it changes our behavior. Um, and, and so the, the kind of idea here is that, you know, a lot of managers will say, a lot of leaders will say, I have an open door policy and then sort of leave it at that. And, and the kind of, the suggestion is, you know, that's just not enough, right? It's just, you, it's just not enough to have, to say you have an open door policy. You've really got to be going out there in the organization and, and, and digging in and understanding things. You've really got to be rewarding people for dissent, even if you don't agree with them. And even if you don't take the action they wanted you to take. You really have to highlight the fact that they spoke up and to celebrate that. Um, and you know, it, as a leader, it is your job to um, to get input from the people that are closest to the problem. And and there's a real humility in being willing to do that, and, and a real um, willingness to say, "I don't have the answer," which I think is is a real challenge for many many leaders who are promoted for having the answer and who are kind of connect, you know rewarded for having the answer. Um, so that, that's, I think, a kind of, um, that, that covers those things. Um, I'm curious, Tom, your, your, your hand is up. I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm curious what, you, what, you, what you've got. Got to find unmute. I, I, it's interesting you, you talk about crew resource management because I think one of the things that crew resource management is very powerful about, and I've become obsessed with reading about aviation incidents, and it's very good at managing the short-term interaction. It's very focused on what happens in the cabin over the, if you like, the hours of the flight and the minutes of the incident. But one of the things about a lot of the accidents that you've talked about is that the causes go back years and years and years and particularly if you're involved in design operations that some of the changes have effects years later you know someone changes an operating parameter and then you get the failure a year or two or three years later you change right. the organization right. it's only five years later that, that that and i just wondered how you recommend the sort of long-term um version of crew resource management you know, because cruise resource management is very specific, trainable, and I can see how it works short term, but I haven't got my head around how to do that long term. <clears throat> right. I, I, I think I, I get your question. And, you know, I think um, it's, it's a great question. And I, what I would say is I often see these things as, um, you know, I probably use the word fractal with my clients too often. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, you've got this, you've got this embedded in a, a dynamic between two people or a team is whether the leader is open to, to feedback, whether people are encouraged to speak up. And that's that kind of micro level of crew resource management that you're, you're talking about. Um, but then you zoom out to an organization, a division, an installation, a site. And well, now all of a sudden you've got kind of the same question, like is this system, um, and I'm gonna include, I include the people in that, is the system open to learning? Is the system open to feedback? Do they have structures in place that let them 
take that learning in and use it to, to kind of invite improvement, use it to change how people are working together. And so it's, I think, a different, it's the same, um, you know, it's the same kernel in, in the middle of both of those, which is really a kernel of um, humility, recognizing the limits of expertise, recognizing that people can go without kind of interruption and, 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 and strategic dissent, people can go down the wrong path for a long, long time, just kind of how our brains work. We're very comfortable with, you know, taking the first option that we think about and we can get stuck in that and all of those things. And you take that kernel of like humility and learning and that being your stance and you expand it to the organizational level, you know, now all of a sudden you've got this kind of, you know, like higher level version of crew, crew, crew resource management oriented around listening, learning, and changing course when, when appropriate. Um, and then of course, you can imagine that on an industry level too, right? Industry, you know, working together, regulators really regulating from this stance of learning rather than a stance of reactivity. I know that there's some ways in which that feels like a fantasy, but we also see places where it happens. Um, so yeah, does that, is that helpful, Tom? Does that feel responsive? I guess one of the challenges is that how you get that culture um, when it's very difficult to learn. I mean, there's been some chat on the on the comments that it, the children falling learn quickly because they've got a safe way of falling. And I think it's interesting if you compare what happened in my industry 30 years ago, we saw losses of containment. I remember talking to drillers when we were kind of trying to get to the bottom of Deepwater Horizon. Most drillers, sort of over 60, experienced kicks and losses of control weekly, monthly, we'd all seen blowouts, it happened. If you talk to the people now, you know, it's it's one a decade um, and they're, they're not just fewer, they've got massive consequences, but that means right. that you haven't got a feel for it. So I think that there are ways of changing the culture. And I think it's quite interesting what you're saying, that could be very powerful, but we've also got to recognize that we're learning beings. And when there's this huge time lag, learning's very hard. I mean, someone said to me once, that's why losing weight is hard, because it takes six months before you see any effect. You know, very delayed feedback gives a very difficult system to improve. And same count, you don't see it degrading. So it's totally. Absence of short-term feedback, absence of how do you learn safely without getting diverted? And one of the challenges of the incidents that you're talking about, and certainly BP was quite justifiably criticised. They were obsessed with personal safety, which actually became a distraction. Being brilliant at personal safety can actually degrade your major risk control. So it's, yeah. I wonder whether you've seen that. You optimise one loop and degrade another one. And that's the nature of complex systems. Everything is so entangled. Um, it always reminds you of the whack-a-mole sort of thing. You bang this one down and something else pops up. So you try to bang that one, but things keep on popping. And that's, that's the, honestly the definition of a wicked environment. These are problems that maybe are not resolvable. What we've got is a great conversation and it makes me think of this other complexity phenomenon that nature uses called diversity. So how can, Chris, diversity help us avoid failure in a complex world? Um, well, I'm, I'm aware that Gordon has something to say and I wanna make sure we have oh, space right. for that. Okay. Gordon, did you wanna, do you wanna chime in now before I we- I think I'll, I'll, just hold, I'll just hold my thought there because uh, Tom raised some really good points there, but I'll just hold my, my thoughts and let you answer your question. Great. Thanks, Greg. Um, so what, what I was going to say, uh, is, so diversity, I mean, we're actually kind of talking about it now. You, you know, one of the things that is just really, sh really shines through just empirically in the research is that just more diverse teams perform better on, on complex tasks. Um, so in, in complex environments, more diverse teams, and, and I'm talking about, you know, surface level diversity, um, you know, age, gender, race, but also subject matter diversity. Are, are people experts in the same thing? Do you have a group of, you know, is everybody an engineer? Is everybody an oil and gas engineer? Or do you have people from different backgrounds? And one of the things that we know about homogeneous teams is they really give each other the benefit of the doubt. You know, somebody will say something and, and the other people, you know, either because they don't want to look dumb or because they think, well, they, that person must know what they're talking about. There's just less challenge and there's just less kind of incorporation of additional 
um, you know, ideas and noise in the system. And so one of the ways that we, we know that we can get better outcomes, particularly in complex environments, is by having better inputs, having, you know, diverse, a diverse group of people that, that are kind of diverse enough that it doesn't feel like a tokenizing phenomenon and that people are authentically um, have the space to speak up and to and to share their views and that again like we were talking about with with CRM that 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 speaking up that speak up culture is really kind of respected and valued and it's not um, you know people aren't incorporated for uh, you know just the, the 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 purpose of being a dissenting voice but they're they're really um, a participant in the process. All right, Gord, did you uh did you have a comment there? Yeah, I, I, I was trying to formulate my thought there what, when Tom was speaking, but it, it's interesting when we talk about left brain and, and right brain, and, and I'm not educated in neurology to the point that you know, some, some people are for sure. But the thing that gets me, if, we are, if we're talking about left brain as people that are more engineered minded or more... Oh, did Gord freeze out there? Just at the wrong moment. I'm sure his, his connection was perfect the whole rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. Unexpected consequences. Here we go. Good example. Hopefully not quite a meltdown, but um, that's what happens. Um, anybody else have a comment, question? Um, I'm going to put um, Jim, Jim Ernest on the line, um, if you don't mind, Jim. How do you see this stuff we're talking about meltdown connect with your book? that you guys wrote and critical steps. Hey, Jeff. Uh, oh, you gotta mute, just unmute yourself. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, are you there? Yeah. I did. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think there's a significant complementary nature. Um, you know, knowing what to, have ongoing conversations about, it's very important. Mm -hmm. Being able to populate those with the right types of folks, having a good understanding of the variability of your work, and then bringing all that together so you can have those ongoing conversations. Uh, very relatable, I think. Great, great. Yeah, thanks. Oh, you're back yeah. on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, the, the main point I wanted to make was we really need, we need more whiteboard time where people can discuss in that storytelling environment back and forth where your brain is flowing the information um, and where you can, you, you can imagine and, and your brain is much freer and you can think and talk and propose things. And, and, and that's where you can imagine what could go wrong, what might, where, where something might be and that's where I think we're missing because we, we focus so much on meeting, you know, KPIs or, or project timelines or, it, and what it does, it just shuts people down who have that ability to whiteboard collaborate. That's kind of what I was thinking. All right. That's what Tom's thoughts raised to me. And I, excuse me, you know, one of the things that I, when I'm working with leaders or a leadership team, particularly on, on a, on a, 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 you know, a big change or I'll call it transformational, like a real impactful transformational change. So one of the things that, that I help them do is to attend to the process of work as much as the content of the work. So most of us are very good about jumping in and, you know, we've got opinions on content. We think that this thing should be designed in this way and this thing should be designed in this way, but we don't spend most of us don't spend nearly enough time really connecting with, well, how do we want to have this conversation? You know, how, how are we going to hear from uh, equal, you know, make sure people aren't being left out of the conversation? How are we going to call on people and kind of create space for their voice to be heard? How are we going to take all of these ideas from a very divergent group and, and converge on kind of something practical that we're going to do next? And those are kind of, you know, those are sort of meta questions, right? They're sort of questions about how we work together and what we're doing. But I think that they're so important and so powerful. And, you know, when I think about, um, you know, to, to Gord's point there, 
the what that brought up for me was you know this discussion about risk on deep water i mean some of that was you know through email with somebody saying well we don't have the right pieces but i'm sure we'll be fine or you know even if you go back to challenger and and you know that the kind of infamous conference call that that kind of everybody has has probably read about it's like gosh i wonder you know, would that have had a different outcome if those people were in the room together and they had been able, you know, so you sort of have to match the bandwidth of your conversation with the kind of the, 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 the work you're doing. And I think that that's, um, that's something that's, um, we could all attend to a little bit more, we, 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 yeah. Right, okay. Tom, Jim, get out your hands up. Um, who wants to go first? Can I just, it's just really a quick, challenge to us as a community i suppose chris because what i'm hearing is you say we need to be facilitating conversations encouraging people to listen and tell stories and be respectful and really get into the deep stuff create open space i think gary said something you know sorry gordon said something about we need more whiteboard time and and i sense a contradiction between what we're saying in this conversation and certainly what most safety professionals do and certainly what yes. we perceive to do out in the field you know follow these rules stick to that do this do the other we're, we're seen as being a very prescriptive and directive and instructive part of the organization and what i'm hearing is to manage the complex major consequence events we need a completely different type of behavior culture behavior um, procedure so I, I just wondered how you yeah. balance those two because obviously you've got to you can't afford to lose the basics, but there's a real right. contradictory tension there for me that I'm hearing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll weigh in and say that just I'm, you know, I, I think if you look at the work of of the Sydney Deckers of the world, of of folks like Todd Conklin, like, you know, procedural safety is very good at managing personnel risk in linear, simple systems, right? And and. And I think more and more safety as a profession is in a position where you really are, your, your highest best use is to be a trusted advisor on the complexity of the work, right? That's kind of, that's your, that's your highest best use. That's, that's one of the ways I would put it. Um, and what that means is um, really being a facilitator and being a, a, a driver of engagement and helping the people that own the benefit also own the risk, right? Because if you if, if safety is in opposition to the people that make the business decisions, in, in some sense, you know, you've you've already lost, right? You've already lost that that conversation. But if you can be a trusted advisor, that's a whole different ballgame. So I'm working with a, a, a safety team um, at a big multinational. You know, they have just unbelievably complex dynamic environments they operate in. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is we're talking about this center of expertise that they are currently investing in and, and building up. And one of the things that's that's cool about it is we're having exactly this conversation that, you know, this, the, the center of expertise is not about technical approaches to safety. It's not about, you know, how do you how do you promulgate uh, advice on working from height, right? People, people get that. Yes, you need advice on that. Yes, you need people to be able to kind of draw that in. But more what you need is um, you know, how do you facilitate, how do you grow people's capacity on the, on the production side to be safety leaders, to, um, you know, create space for people to speak up, to, you know, have those conversations, to create ways of escalating challenge that is not threatening and that does not result in people being, you know, blackballed or, or retaliated against. So that is all, you know, safety leadership rather than procedural safety. And I think that that is really, you know, some of the leaders I get to work with in this space, and I'm not a safety professional, to be clear, but some of the leaders I get to work with who are really, really visionary, you know, this is what they're, they're thinking about. They are thinking about how do you elevate the conversation around safety and how do you focus on, you know, the safety of work rather than the worker safety, rather than this kind of procedural approach to, to checking boxes. So uh, I know that was a long answer. And of course, we're not going to resolve it in, in you know, the, the, the the three minutes that we have, but but just kind of you know, give me a nod or a thumbs up. Does that does that kind of land with you, Tom? Does that sort of is that kind of the right the direction you were thinking about? Yeah. Great. Jim, you got a quick one. Um, it's getting close to the top of our. So go ahead, Jim. You know, I would say that um, number one, I don't want to take the rest of the time. So just an observation. Uh, there are a lot of conversations happening already about the things that matter 
and being able to go out in the field and find those folks that are having those conversations and encourage increased participation is something that we found worked real well in the research community. Good. Thanks. Tamara, you got something to say? Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of build on what, what's being said. You know, what I found in my experience was um, really supercharging is, is when employees did come with an issue or you identified an issue, you know, in order to get buy-in, engaging them in the process, but also understanding that you're not the industry expert on all things. And what you can really do is bring in somebody who is an industry expert to have those discussions with the employees. And it's amazing what I saw with the field super, uh, field workers when I brought somebody in who could answer a lot of the hard questions that I wouldn't have been able to answer. And then they're building that credibility, like, yes, I can actually help you problem solve this. And then there they started to create a plan amongst with the workers. And then it was interesting that afterwards, the workers then started to create their own processes in that department in order for dealing with that, and then stuck it up on the wall. And then every time a new individual came in, because I was in retail, as many people know, they had, um, they were so proud to onboard that new employee about these pro procedures they had created. Right. And, and the whole essence of this is how we work in this department. It was just transforming in, in providing that empowerment. That's great. Okay. So we're nearing the top of the hour. And again, Ron, respect that uh, Chris is only with us for a couple minutes. So I'm going to give the last minute to Chris and just ask him, what would be your three takeaways you would like to leave the viewers? Um, well, First, I just want to say thank you for the conversation. It's been really great and, and really delightful. And um, I, I think, you know, some of the takeaways I'm, I'm going to take from, from the conversation, um, which is, you know, one, I think something I'll bring in from the book is just that complexity really matters, right? It is, it is just an important problem to attend to. And I think the more people we can get thinking, you know, there's a whole like, weird sub ecosystem of us that who are obsessed with complexity right and and the more that we as a kind of network can start to get particularly you know leaders interested in how is the system complex and how does that actually affect things i think the the more power that we that we have so one is complexity matters um and then you know i i, I think two is that and this has been a thread through our conversation learning matters also right learning is 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 the most important thing in a modern organization. Um, thinking about how you can learn, how you can iterate, how you can change your approach to things. Um, this is a tremendously powerful approach to, to look at the lens of almost any kind of, of problem. If you're a learning organization, you're going to be growing and changing and adapting. Um, so that, that's the kind of second thing. And then the third thing I'll attend to is just what we've just been talking about, which is how do you actually create space for that level of conversations and, and recognizing that as safety professionals, the opportunity really is to elevate yourself to a, a trusted partner of the business and a trusted advisor, um, rather than being on the level of this kind of procedural thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, those are the three things that, that I would offer. Great. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us for the hour. And thank you for all of the online book club members for joining us today. Um, this will be the last one for 2021. Um, I'd like to say that I don't mind seeing the year go by. And we'll start fresh again in 2022. So happy holidays, everybody. And tomorrow, over to you. Yeah, no, happy holidays, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us on behalf of Safepedia. I'm glad that you joined us today. Thank you. And folks can um, find out more about me. Um, meltdownbook.net is there's some information about the book or chrisclearfield.com. You can email me chris at chrisclearfield.com. Um, and yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and the dialogue and um, also people contributing in the chat. So, so thank you. And just to bring to people's attention, I did drop both your links in the chat so you can see the book, Chris, and connect with Chris on LinkedIn. And I did that on LinkedIn, too, in the conversation. Oh, great. So click on those 
and we'll post those on to the site as well. Great. Okay. Thanks, all. Okay. Thanks, Thank everyone. you. Bye. Thanks for the invitation, Gary. Thanks. Care, Bye, everybody. Bye.